Good morning. Welcome. Christ Chapel, will you open your Bibles? We are going to be in Acts chapter 19 today. If you've got the blue Bibles here in any of the venues, it's going to be page 928. Excited and humbled and honored to get to preach God's word to you. Last week, if you remember, in Acts 18, we saw Apollos, and we saw Apollos in Ephesus, and towards the end of Ephesus, he leaves Ephesus. Um, he, he was there, and, and as he leaves, Paul is going to show up uh, in Ephesus. Now, Apollos heads to Corinth, and Paul shows up where uh, Apollos kind of left off. Paul's in the middle of his third missionary journey. He's in his third missionary journey, and he, he shows up. And what we're going to study today is 20 verses uh, in chapter 19 that really look at three years, a three-year ministry of Paul that we're going to see in these 20 verses. Uh, there's a ton to cover in these 20 verses, so we're going to get after it. Uh, there's a lot we're going to see, and there's a lot we won't even have time for, but um, I want you to pay attention to a theme that I think runs throughout Paul's encounters with various disciples and groups and, and people he runs into. Uh, there's dysfunction everywhere in Ephesus, right? It's an incredibly immoral place, but it's also an incredibly significant place in the geography and the Roman world, in uh, the trade routes and the travel and the people and the influence that Ephesus has. But it is a dark and immoral place. And what we're going to see is that almost every encounter Almost every encounter Paul has with a group of people, uh, some kind of disciple, they are distorted in some way. There's something they're missing, there's something they believe wrong or function wrong or orthodoxy or orthopraxy or the way they're putting into practice what they believe. Uh, there's a distortion in their discipleship. Um, and, and by that, I mean everyone is claiming in some ways to be a disciple of some kind or of, of, some, of some path or, or way, uh, but they're just distorted. Maybe theologically they're missing something. Um, discipleship is something that is happening in all of our lives. As I studied this passage, I just kept running into and even seeing themes in my life and patterns in my life where discipleship, me being a disciple, is something that's so easily in our modern and our modern walks with Jesus gets disordered. We, we get things wrong. We, we get off course in ways. Um, it's what we're called to be. We're called to be disciples. It's not just something we do. Discipleship is not just something we do. It is who we are as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus. And yet Acts 19 is going to remind us of some of the dangers of when we get off course. So uh, because we've got so much, let's jump into it. Verses uh, one, 1 through a 7 right off the bat here. <clears throat> Chapter 19. Here's what our author Luke says. He says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, let's stop right there, because that alone is, is so much for us to unpack. There's two things I want to I work through. Uh, one is I want us to unpack this distinction between these two baptisms, the baptism of John, baptism of repentance, and the baptism of Jesus. And then I, I want to talk about what is going on with the Holy Spirit and falling in tongues and, and all of that stuff. So first, 
John's baptism, the baptism of repentance, uh, and then this baptism of Jesus. And if you were here last week, we dove into this. We, we looked at this and studied this some with, with Apollos. Apollos had a similar hole in his theology. He was, uh, we believe, in Christ. He was preaching things accurately, but there was still a part of his theology that hadn't, hadn't fully clicked yet um, as he was making disciples and he was lovingly kind of pulled aside and encouraged and challenged to say, hey, here's some, here's some more pieces to as you make disciples uh, deeper and, and more accurately. Um, and so, so we see that, and early on, Paul encounters the same kind of story. Very possibly these were even uh, disciples of Apollos, right? They, they kind of the telephone game of this is what Apollos knew and well-intended. This is what he was teaching people. And, and so you've got this telephone game where maybe they've, they've missed even more of it. These are devout men, right? They're devout people. They've been baptized into the baptism of John. Um, but you remember John... John the Baptist, he was the forerunner for Christ, right? He was the one who actually baptized Jesus to, to begin when Jesus began his ministry. And so these men, they genuinely desire to honor God, right? They're genuinely trying to do what they can with what they know, which at that time was only the, the, the gospel of, of John the Baptist, that the kingdom was coming to repent because the kingdom was, was near. And so they're, they're trying to be devout with what they know, um, their theology and their understanding of the gospel, though, is distorted. It's, it's missing something um, just because they aren't aware yet of this crucial piece. John's baptism, here he comes. The Savior is coming, the kingdom is coming, but Jesus' bad baptism is the message that says, I am. I, I am. Christ came and he said, I, I am the one you have been waiting for. All of the Old Testament, all of the prophets... All of those who have been waiting, who were saved by grace and faith of God, that you will send a Savior, that one day there will be a groom who will come for his bride. It, it, it it's culminates in, in John the Baptist at this incredible point in history where Jesus then shows up and Jesus says, I am the Christ and the Savior that you've been waiting for. And that, that hole was still there for these disciples. They were devout. They, they wanted it. They were trying their best. And Paul comes and he puts those pieces together. Jesus was always the one that the Old Testament was pointing to. And so Luke is documenting what really is an incredible turning point in history, in the history of the church. Up until this point, it was pointing to, and now we're getting, because of, of Luke here in Acts, we're getting this snapshot, seeing behind the curtain, of what happens when a, when a disciple is standing on the bridge of the Old Testament and the New Testament, waiting for the kingdom coming, and now has the name of Jesus and the person and the work of Jesus. Um, and, and so John is pointing to Jesus, and then Jesus himself points to the Holy Spirit, which will, which will come after him. He talks about that in, in John 14. And so Luke is documenting this, right? He's documenting this, this um, interaction and this now receiving that they have. And so Jesus here, he's fulfilled the prophecies. He's died. He's risen for the sins of the world, for those who believe, and baptism in Jesus as Lord is is this wedding ring, right? If John the Baptist's baptism was an engagement ring to say, hey, he's coming, repent, he's around the corner, this, the, the groom is coming back, then the baptism of Jesus is this outward symbol of he's here and he has made me his if, if I am in Christ. And so that's the, the symbolism we have here. But these fellows in Ephesus, they just didn't have that yet. They still had the engagement ring and Paul comes and corrects it and and makes it right, and, and that clicks in place, and that distortion all, all of a sudden aligns, they get it. They believe here at the beginning of Acts 19. Paul then baptizes them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then 
lays hands on him. The Holy Spirit falls. They begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. So that's the the difference there between the baptism of John and the baptism of of Jesus. But then we have uh, this story here where the disciples get their hands and there's this miraculous thing. And and it's a a key part in scripture. Um, It's an important scene that happens here. Well, there's a theological camp. There's a theological camp called continuationists, or sometimes they're talked about as charismatics, right? And this theological camp will point to uh, this passage, which I think would be easy to do. Um, also, there's, a, there's another occurrence in Acts chapter 10 to say, well, wait a second. We all need that. This is, this is prescriptive of we all need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that there is a second baptism. And so there's a big portion of those who are in that continuationist camp that would say we are waiting for the second baptism. If you haven't had the second baptism where the Spirit falls on you, maybe you've been saved and you've been baptized in water, but have you gotten the second baptism where you, you speak in tongues and the miraculous happens because they're going to look to a couple of these uh, passages for that. That that second baptism is, is really what, what gives us this varsity status in our Christian life at times. And um, I think that's well intended, but um, we here are cessationists, right? So I'm a cessationist, which means this. It means, oftentimes people think, well, cessationists, do you think that Texas should secede? That's a common thing. It doesn't have anything to do with Texas seceding. Although, if Matthew McConaughey was president, I would consider it. I would pray about it. No, 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 no. A cessationist is what we believe. We believe that the scriptures teach that the gifts, the miraculous sign gifts, right, the, the, the prophecies, the ability to heal the way that God uh, gave specific apostles the ability to heal on command, that those sign gifts to authorize those apostles in the book of Acts, we see it, and in the New Testament church, those have ceased to function the way that they did here at the New Testament church, right, that they don't function in that same way. Now, before we get too far, let me tell you what we as cessationists do believe, we do believe that the Holy Spirit is active and moving and powerful. We should be sensitive to it. We should submit to it. We do believe that our God has not ceased to do miracles, right? Our God is active and moving. We do believe that our God heals. In fact, this morning, we have an 8 a.m. prayer meeting for our staff. We were praying for healing for, for some, some friends and some people who have, have cancer, and, and if you come forward, our elders, will, they will pray for you and ask, God, would you do this thing? Because we believe he can. Our God can do whatever he wants. But are we missing something? Is there an entitlement to say, well, I, what, where is my sign gift, right? That, that this is an entitlement that, okay, well, I, I should have this second wave of the Holy Spirit that will then give me this ability to heal on command or to speak a, a new prophecy or to have new revelation or to speak in tongues in those ways. Uh, we believe it happened. We just don't believe it's normative in how the Spirit of God functions now. It was so important then. The historical moment of this were disciples of John who hadn't gotten that John was pointing to Jesus yet. And, and the Holy Spirit tarries in this way. Until we now can witness, and and Luke and Paul can can witness this happening. Wait, you mean we repent, the kingdom is coming, and that kingdom, that king is Jesus? As Paul teaches, then it clicks for them. And then they get the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way, almost as if to authorize this unique time in history. Happened another time in Acts 10, similar, a, a, a massively important time in history in Acts 10 when Peter Interacts with the first Gentiles who get it, who get the gospel. 
And it was as if God said, I want to authorize this message. I want to authorize this messenger. That what will be normative is I will bring the lost into my family. I will save my kids. I will call the bride to myself. And I will move in their hearts and I will give them the Holy Spirit. But here in a very specific way. And so we see that turning point, right? We see this turning point. So that's kind of what we do with that. And there's a lot of very, I think, well-intended believers who are in a different theological camp who are, who are preaching and discipling people in, in certain sections of charismatic faith. Discipling them, oh, if you haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you, you, you're missing something. You're, you're not varsity. You, you might not be saved. And, and so I understand where they get that from, but I want you to understand the bigger scope of God's word. Right, that those things aren't normative. We, we, there are times where God moves in miraculous ways. A good example is the Old Testament. Moses. In the life of Moses, God worked consistently and normatively in Moses to do miracle after miracle after every day there's manna from heaven. Right? And God's moving. Moses can, can hit a, a rock with his staff and water comes out of it. There's these consistent miracles that he is doing through Moses. But we don't read the story of Moses, and think, oh, that's prescriptive. We read it, and we think, that's true, that's God's word, that's descriptive of how the Spirit of God shows, because Moses, it was normative. Moses is the person who came after Moses, Joshua, it wasn't normative. The Spirit of God didn't do those same things through Joshua, the leader who then Moses handed the baton to. And so we see that throughout church history, we see that throughout theology, and it's important to understand God's word so that our, our theology doesn't get distorted and we start chasing after things and we say, man, are we chasing after the gospel of Jesus and a surrender to him? Or are we chasing after a, a, an emotion or a, or a feeling or a sensational thing that we do believe God does and can do if he chooses? Um, but sometimes it gets, um, it gets distorted for all of us. If you want to study this more, great book I'd recommend. John Stott wrote a book called Baptism and Fullness. So we don't have time to go into the whole, uh, all of it today, but if you really want to look at it for yourself and study scripture uh, alongside another theologian, John Stott's Baptism and Fullness, he does a great job of walking uh, through passages to understand, is there a second baptism that, that, that we're missing out on that, that we need? All right, once it is clicked though, we see the Spirit of God, it, it makes an example, it celebrates uh, this turning point in history, it authenticates their faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But it's fascinating to me, right? Because these are devout religious people, right? Their, ev their every intention seems to be really good. It seems to be to honor God, right? They're following faithfully the religious rules that they know, right? There's even repentance in their life it talks about, right? The baptism, I mean, they've turned their lifestyle away from a lifestyle that's not honoring to God towards a lifestyle that is honoring to God. But until Paul, they had no relationship with Christ Jesus, Distorted discipleship might have rules that, that you follow. It might have repentance, actually, and behavior change, but no relationship to Christ. And, and that becomes dangerous. Distorted discipleship, it might have rules, it might even have repentance, but no relationship with Christ. We obviously see this play out in our secular culture, right? People might know the name of Jesus as a historical figure or as a religious leader. Um, our secular world will know that name, um, but, but they don't know that he is the solution to what they are looking for. He is the solution to what is unwhole in, in all of us. That, that is what we are designed to find our satisfaction in. And so whatever system we've built or the, the lost world around us has even built 
um, to say, this is how I'm going to be satisfied. This is how I'm going to achieve. This is how I'm going to validate myself. They're looking for something. They're chasing for something, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus. They might be good people and do good things, but, but there's not a relationship with the one who is designed to fully satisfy and designed to be connected. Right? And it's not just in our secular culture. It's in our church culture too. Right? In our, our church culture, we know the rules. Right? We, we maybe even there's repentance and there's behavior change in our life. But so often, we, we do these things and we go through the motions, but there's no relationship with Jesus undergirding it. There's no foundation of a relationship with Christ. It's, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm going to live a better life and I'm going to follow the, the Christian way of life. I'm going to try to have the Christian thoughts and the Christian theology and the Christian understanding, but without a relationship with Christ. We are, we are told that this is the case. We are told that many, many will say, look, look at all of these rules. Look at all of this repentance in my life at the, at the end of their life. And Jesus will say, I, I don't know you. I don't have a relationship with you. I don't know you. He's so often become a mascot of our religion, right? And he's not a mascot, right? He is the point. A personal relationship with Jesus is the point. He is our hope, right? He is our hope. He is the one we look to. God is the one who satisfies our loneliness and our shame. And and he is the one who makes right what is wrong and, and fixes what is broken, and for so many people in, in even the church culture, it becomes, um, it becomes where we get just enough Jesus religion, just enough Jesus mascot to make us feel like we're doing okay. And we think, well, I, I just need a, a little bit more church. I just need a little bit more of doing the right thing. Um, those are all good things, but without a relationship, it's still going to be exhausting. I believe there are people here People who are watching, people in other venues who, um, man, you're a good person. You've got, you're, you're doing the right thing. You're trying to live the right way. You're a good person. But you're missing a relationship with Christ. You're trying Christianity. Or maybe you know people who have tried Christianity. They've tried the rules and the lifestyle. And, and then they said, nah, that just didn't work for me. I tried that when I was younger. I did that. I just had bad experience. And then they've moved on from it. And they think they've checked the box, but they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. If that is you, and if you are hearing this, then it's not an accident you're here. And the Holy Spirit says, I have more for you. I have more for you. There's a distortion in our discipleship when we go through the motions without a relationship. So the question, do do you know who Christ is and are you sharing him with those who don't? Do we really know that Jesus is not just our mascot? He's not just the figurehead of of the religious affiliation we have. He is our savior. He He is the one who allows us to approach a heavenly father. He is our high priest. He is our hope. He is our satisfaction. Do we know him? And if we really know him, I think we can look at, are we sharing him? Because if we're not sharing him with others, if we're not living a life where we are, we are it's contagious to want to share him with others, if our heart doesn't break for, for those who don't know who Jesus is, if that's not happening, then, then I think that's scary. And, and I would wonder, well, maybe we don't really know him, right? Maybe we don't really know him, or at least to the depth of who he is in our life. 
Are we sharing him from a relationship that we have that's personal, not just, a, not just a transaction that we theologically believe will get people out of hell, but a relationship we are called to on this side of eternity and into the next. Let's look at what happens next. Because he's going to enter a, a totally different area and have a very different response. <clears throat> he entered the synagogue, verse 8. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Awesome story. An incredible effect of what happened, right? Paul's in the synagogue, and he is talking with these Jewish believers, these disciples of the Jewish faith, and he's reasoning. We've seen this all throughout Acts, and we've really, I've loved how we've dived into what he's doing. He's helping them put the pieces together, and he's persuading them. He's like, look, look, what you've studied, what you believe has always been pointing, and look at this, and look at this prophecy, and here it is here. And so for three months, and yet these disciples of this Jewish faith, again, know Jesus, they don't have Jesus, it's trying to help them click. And unlike the first group, though, that really receives it and says, man, you're right, we see it now, these people don't. They reject, they kick Paul out, but Paul keeps it up. He says, okay, we're going to go over here. They're rejecting it, we're going to go over here. And he, he enters into this basically secular place to be able to dialogue and can continue to do ministry and incredible things, huge impact, even just geographically, that... People all throughout Asia heard the word of the Lord and it's spreading and they're coming through Ephesus and they're hearing the gospel and they're receiving and they're going on. I want to pick, though, pick on these, these distorted disciples here um, in the synagogue who stayed back, who rejected the gospel. Here. And I want to pick on them because I see a familiar pattern in my heart. Right? What, what's the text say? It says they became stubborn. We saw a couple of chapters earlier, a theme that happens Everywhere where people believe, I talked about it earlier in Acts, it seems like the world gets flipped upside down, right? Or maybe right side up, depending on which way you're looking at it, right? And the Jews in the synagogue are stubbornly holding on to what they are used to, right? They don't want to get their world flipped upside down. Cody shared about it in his sermon last week or maybe the week before. He's talked about his testimony and so many of our testimonies when we realized what it meant to to surrender our life to Christ, to put our faith in Jesus, we realized things are going to change. And, and this was a group of, of Jewish believers who, who didn't believe in Jesus, the Jewish faith, these disciples who said, no, 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 our faith stops here. We don't want things to change. We're comfortable. They've got their traditions. They've got their community. We don't, we don't want that turned upside down with the gospel. And sometimes the hurdle to unbelief is intellectually understanding? Do we really understand who Jesus is? But sometimes it's our hearts. It's not an intellectual stubbornness. It's, it's a heart stubbornness. Because I, I don't want faith to that degree that's going to change things for me and maybe, maybe make things uncomfortable in ways. The reality is the distorted discipleship, it might have community, which we know is a good thing. It might have traditions, which can be a good thing, but no faith in Jesus. There's not a faith to say, yes, I'm all in. I, instead, no, no, I've got the religious community. I've I got this, but I, I don't want to change everything. I'm comfortable the way it is. I'm comfortable with, 
with where my faith is now. And, and because of that, they didn't want to put their faith in Jesus, their saving faith in Jesus. They didn't want that change. And what it is, is it's a compartmentalizing of Jesus. And a compartmentalizing of Jesus is a distorted Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't come to be a compartment of your life. Jesus comes to be king over all of your life. The gospel is not, hey, here's a ticket. Keep it in your back pocket in case you need it. The gospel is there's a new kingdom and a new ethic and a new way to live and a new identity that I'm giving you and a new, and a new freedom from addiction and a new victory over shame. And, and it is all of those things and it is an all-in gospel. And so even, even if you're in Christ, we still have a tendency to to compartmentalize Jesus. And that doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but it does mean God, we've got some growing to do. I've got some growing to do in that area. I'm convicted by that. And so do you believe Christ is enough to leave what's comfortable? If that's what God calls you to do, do you believe that Christ is enough to leave what is comfortable? And so many of you, you've got stories after stories of how that is exactly what played out in your life. And, and for some of us, to, to be a Christian is kind of the default setting at times in our culture. Wherever you are, though, wherever you are in, in your walk and in your life, and we are called to live radically. Now, a, a caveat to this is it doesn't always mean following Jesus' discomfort, right? Uh, comfort is not inherently evil. Right? Jesus rested there. I mean, that's not a thing that, oh, if you're comfortable, it means you're disobedient. But certainly to surrender to Christ means a willingness to say, I'll go where you call me to go. Sometimes it's leaving comfort because following Jesus and him being your source of satisfaction and hope, it's going to lead you maybe out of a relationship that you know is where God is calling you to leave that relationship behind or out of a behavior that that used to be really comfortable. It used to be how, how you numbed or how you took the edge off or how you relaxed or how, how you felt valuable was by this behavior or this activity or this. And, and maybe God is calling you out of what used to be comfortable. But also, um, sometimes, yes, you're called to leave something that is comfortable, but, but also sometimes it's something comfortable leaves you. Right? So sometimes we didn't do anything. It's, it's not you being called out of something. It's just... Everything shifts under your, under your feet. and All of a sudden, comfort leaves you. Maybe it's a job, right? And So all of a sudden, wait, why is this job gone? And it doesn't have to be that God is punishing you or God is trying you. This, those things happen. And what happens for us is it reveals for us, well, where was my comfort? Was my comfort in this job? And we can see quickly that maybe even a good job, oh, man, my identity, my satisfaction was here. Or a good, healthy relationship that, that you lose and you grieve. Um, I, I think uh, if you're paying attention, um, our, our culture, right? Our, our culture here in our country, if anyone's paying attention, it is drastically shifting. It's drastically and radically shifting under our feet. And we're aware of it and we pray for it and we step into it. But we see that shifting and, and we're going to look up and it is becoming a place where uh, Christian values and the Christian, the gospel of Jesus is no longer a comfortable place where it has been for, for periods of time. But, but as that shifts, what happens, and, and they hear us say, we're not okay with that. But what happens when that shifts is it reveals, man, where was our hope? 
Where, where was our peace? Was our peace in the fact that we've, we've got a comfortable nation that's, that's going to tolerate what we believe? If that shifts, if in God's sovereignty that shifts, are we still okay with that? Or are we, are we driven straight to fear, straight to disillusionment, straight to discouragement when the job goes away or, 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 or our, our cities start to change? None of those things we can be okay with, but are we ultimately okay and is our source of comfort who he is? Faith in him. Let's get to this next section. This is wild. Verse 11 through 17. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Scevia were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Let's stop right there. Yeah. <laughs> Two things. One, handkerchiefs. Really? Handkerchiefs? Healing handkerchiefs, right? This, this was, again, not prescriptive. All throughout Acts, we see God doing miraculous things to authorize the messenger of what we now have the Holy Spirit, his word, and so God is doing incredible things, right? So if somebody is advertising a handkerchief for sale, four easy payments of $24.99 that they have touched and blessed that will heal your loved one, call me, right? Call me and I will sell you one way cheaper. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> right? Run from that. Flee from that. Right? That's distorted. That's distorted. That's not, that's not from him. That's not how he functions. That's not prescripted. This, that happened. It really was. God chose to function in that way. But also, brings me the second thing to wrap our brains around here. There's this group of distorted disciples who were Jewish exorcists. Right? Get that picture in your mind. Right? Ghostbusters, but Jewish in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And they're going around and they say, wow, this stuff that Paul is doing... This whole Jesus thing is really effective. Well, we're exorcists. That's our job. And they're well-intended. They're trying to help people. There was an unbelievable amount of, obviously, spiritual and demonic activity in Ephesus. It was a really dark and moral place. And so, so they're encountering it, trying to help. Hey, let's try this Jesus thing. And so they have enough respect for the name of Jesus, a confidence, okay, this, this might work. Right? They see the power of Jesus, and they say, hey, yeah, let, let's try some of that. Let's try some of the disconnect, however, is they don't actually believe or personally submitted their lives to the, their allegiance with Christ, but they sure are impressed what his name can get accomplished. They go, they use it on a demon-possessed man. The demon says, okay, Jesus, yep, I know him. Paul, I've heard of him. Don't know who you are. Whooped him. And if there's any doubt who won the fight, you know, sometimes you, you, know, you hear somebody's a fight and it's like, well, you should see the other guy and it's kind of vague, like who won? If you leave naked from a fight, you lost, right? Like, there's, there's not a, it's not a, well, you should see, no, you don't have any clothes on. You got whooped, right? You got completely whooped because they're taking the name of Jesus, dis detached, distorted 
from the actual gospel and a relationship with him, trying to use it, and it just doesn't work that way. And you're going to get whooped when we, when we do that. Disordered discipleship might have confidence in what Christ can do, but no submission to who Christ is. Right? We might have confidence of, oh, no, no, we know Jesus. He can do it. He can fix it. He can heal it. But no actual submission to that lifestyle. We see it all the time. God, I'm, I'm so burdened. I'm so hurt. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so tired of this. Okay, well, then, then let's walk that out. No, 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 no. I just want you to pray for it. And then I want it to go away. And then I want to go live and submit to my own king. I want to live my own way. I want to do my own thing. But, but then when I'm really low, when I'm really hurt, when I'm really discouraged, when I'm, I'm really really needing it, then God, let me just call upon the name. We, we know there's power in that, so let me just get some of that. We find ourselves doing the same thing, a sin pattern that we just want Jesus' help out of. Simple reality is that when, when things get really hard, many of us, that's when we go to Jesus, right? It's when things get really hard, that's when I really need him, right? And I don't, I don't share that to make us feel bad about going to Jesus when things get hard. He tells us to. He is a he is a father who, who says, come to me. So he is still compassionate with that, but he also calls us to more of a relationship than just that. Right? More of a relationship than just that. But so often we just want Jesus as the microwave to, to give us the meal as opposed to the fruit that he says he will bear in us and bring forth in us with a daily abiding. So the question is, do you follow Christ for what he can do for you or for who he is? Is it, is it, yeah, I follow Christ because I really do believe Jesus is the victor. He's the one who can heal. He's the one who, who can help my family. He can help my, my grandkids and he can help my situation. And so I go to him in those ways, which, which is not bad, but it is, it is distorted and unfulfilled of what all we have been called into as a relationship. Who he is. Who he is. He is worthy. He is good. He is eternal. He is he is who my soul is designed to be connected to. He is the one who, who takes broken things and makes them new. That's who our God is. That's what we're called to be in a relationship with him. And yet so often we say, well, I, I'll just wait until I really need him. And I know he's powerful. And then I can call on his name and that. And there's a distortion in our, in our discipleship and our faith when we do that. That we are called to more. We're called to more. I evaluate my prayer life, I evaluate my devotional life, and I see the same patterns here. Let's look at how God uses this, though. In this last little section, let's look at how God uses it. And this became known to all the residents of, of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Quickly, I want to unpack that, man. These, these are believers even. Right? These are believers even who, who showed up, they had a distorted relationship with God, but seeing the power of God, seeing how just trying to use God for his, his name and, and that, that distortion, that minimizing of, of what they had been grafted into and called into, um, man, they saw that. They saw the dangers of getting it wrong, and it drove them to come and to purify their lives. Believers to say, hey, I've got all these, I've got all these things I need to divulge, man, this, this confession 
came out of a response of saying, I, I want more of you. I, I want to self-evaluate. I want to look. I want to dig in. I wanna, oh, I've got these books that are, that are witchcraft and evil and, and all of these incantations that Ephesus would have sold as solutions to your problem that the world was offering. This isn't where I'm going to find my solutions. I know that now. We're going to bring them and we're going to burn them and we're going to divulge all these other ways I've been living. And it's this revival that breaks out. And God is glorified and extolled and there's worship and it is sweet and it spreads and the word of the Lord echoes. There's this radical action that happens, right? Radical action. Their faith grew. And, and, and as their faith grew, this was a natural response to take radical action. I, I'm seeing Jesus for who he is. I'm seeing him. I'm, I'm seeing him for what, not just what he can do, but who he is I want to change. I want to walk this out. I want to step out of disobedience or I want to step into more radical obedience that he's put on my heart. I mean, true disciples have faith that lead them to radical action. Right? There should be action connected to our faith. We are saved, make no mistake, by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's what saves us. But James, in his, in his letter, he, he also helps us really understand that yes, that is how salvation happens, but also look, there should, be, there should be action attached to that. There should be movement that comes from that relationship. Um, my wife, when I started dating Danielle, um, she celebrates half birthdays. You know who celebrates half birthdays? I do now right? Because I had a huge crush on a girl who celebrates half birthdays. So I started showering more. Yeah, when I was going to see her, I started celebrating half birthdays. I got AOL instant messenger to start flirting with her. I did all of these things because I had this faith. Maybe this girl who's way out of my league, maybe I got a shot at a relationship with her. So, so whatever that looks like, our relationship with God, our faith in who he is and who he's called us to be and who he says I am by his grace, not by my cleaning myself up, and it drives us to action. It drives us to evangelism and obedience. It drives us to, to interact with the lost world around us and, the, and the, the culture that's falling apart. It drives us to, 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 to not just sit and be consumers, but to go but it drives us in a way that there is peace and there is hope and we go and we love and there's action that reflects our Savior. We all have spiritual blind spots. All of us. We all have spiritual blind spots. We're all still a work in progress. We can easily find ourselves living just distorted discipleship in our own lives in various ways. Throughout these 20 verses, we see disciples who are missing it, right? We see them missing it. Some of them, when they're confronted, they receive it. And some of them, when they're confronted, they don't. They run. But we have this choice before us. As we study God's word, do we grow stubborn? Do we put on blinders? Or do we hear it and do we respond to it? So my challenge for you and for myself is to continue to ask yourself these questions. Investigate your belief by evaluating investigate your belief in Jesus by evaluating your actions. You say, yes, I believe in Jesus intellectually. Well, do your actions show that you really have, have faith? And for all of us, that we, that we wouldn't hang our head down low, that we, that we don't just become junkies for conviction, but instead we become addicted to the idea of, God, I want to see more grace. I want to see more sanctification in your life. What are the ways that, God, my faith is shallow that drives in inaction? But also investigate your motives. Not just is there action to your faith, but what's the heart behind that action? 
Is the heart behind that action because you want to preserve your own comfort? Is it because you want to be seen? Is it because you want to earn your own righteousness? Or is it a response to who he is and then finally enrich your relationship with Jesus by meeting with him daily? And that's what we're offered and that's what we're invited into. Enjoy him. We get to enjoy this God. That as he corrects this path of discipleship we're on and steers us and we veer left and right, we keep our eyes focused on him. Not out of guilt and obligation, but out of a response, enjoying him along the way. Let me pray. Father, we love you and we're, we're so grateful for your word, God, that is active and speaks and so relevant to us. Father, would you, would you do in our lives what only you can do? Would you draw us near to you? Would you allow us to be men and women who um, would see blind spots in our life. God, where is our faith? Where is our discipleship distorted? Uh, Where can we grow? And Father, thank you that we are allowed through Christ to be able to draw near to you, Lord. Pray all this in the name of Jesus.